Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This January the 5th, 2021 edition, episode 164 of Nature Bats Last, comes to you live from Rakino Island in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and also from Central Florida in the United States. This is Kevin Hester, and I'm again joined today by my co-host, Professor Guy McPherson. Today's show includes a conversation with Dr. Jim Musser, oceanographer and science educator. Guy, will you do the honours, please? Thank you, Kevin. We are ecstatic to have Jim Massa join us today. We will focus on his ongoing work in public education, which is derived from more than 20 years of teaching at Diné College in New Mexico and the University of Alaska in Fairbanks, as well as an often sought middle school and high school substitute science teacher. I have taught at these various grade levels too, and I can assure you that each of them presents significant challenges. In addition to his substitute teaching, Jim's primary educational platform currently is YouTube, where he has a channel called Science Talk with Jim Massa. He discusses recent and emerging information in scientific research with the goal of presenting evidence in a manner that can be understood by the general public. He has been handling topics such as climate change, astronomy, environmental science, and paleontology for about three years on his YouTube channel. Jim, welcome to Nature Bass Last on the Progressive Radio Network. Thank you, and uh, uh, great to be here with you guys. We will, be as, we will be taking your toll-free calls today. Please call us with your questions and comments after we spend a bit of time with our guest. We are most easily reached with a toll-free telephone call to 888-874-874. For eight eight eight, Kevin, will you start us off? Jim, welcome to the show. My first question regards the threat of large-scale methane seeps from the clathrates in the Arctic. The British, the British newspaper The Guardian, recently published an article referencing the work of Dr. Natalia Shakova and Igor Semelatov, and then it was flagged by on social media. How is it the work of these great renowned scientists is being ignored or worse still, censored? Well, uh, these, yeah, they have been unfairly getting uh, a lot of uh, flack. And they've been doing this work for over you know, 25 
years plus or minus. And in my view, they're the leading uh, authorities on the the methane issue in the Arctic, be it, uh, in, for example, Natalia's work in the East Siberian Sea, uh, along with Igor, as well as uh, the work they've done on land in, uh, in Siberia. Um, they have been criticized for overestimating uh, their, you know, how much methane is being released. And um, I there was a paper that just came out recently uh, where the researchers uh, reported extremely low values of methane. And they're basically saying, you know, they're using that as evidence along with a couple other um, studies showing very low uh, methane. In fact, I can even uh, share with you some of the, the levels that have been measured, or at least reported, in those papers. For example, and this is a paper that came out in Polar Science like the end of August, beginning of September. And they're saying, oh, the average uh, emission rates was 0.58 plus or minus 0.47 teragrams of methane per year. And that's considerably much lower than uh, what Natalia and Eagle reporting, um, looking for, uh, you know, something they're reporting like around anywhere from 8 to 17 teragrams. So a couple of orders of magnitude there. And what you have to understand when doing uh, these samplings is uh, the time of year that the research cruises go, and the fact uh, that the ocean is a large place and it's really difficult to sample. And you, know, you can run your transect. Fine, you're getting a snapshot in time along those transects, but there's a lot that's being missed. So it's, it's my assessment is that the values being reported are actually extreme underestimations. And I think Natalia and Igor, um, they tend to uh, sample most of the year. So as opposed to, you know, other uh, researchers being, again, they cruise, they get like a couple of weeks out of the year. They're able to sample a little more continuously. So I think they get a better handle on what's going on. And when you consider, you know, the size of the Arctic and Siberia and the and the, uh, the shelf system around the Arctic Ocean, there is the potential for huge amounts of methane that can be released. And I'm seeing some estimations of about, and this is again just a very rough ballpark, about 1,400 gigatons of potential methane, if not more. So, Igor um, and Natalia, they know what they're doing, um, and you know they. I think they have the best handle on this, and they really should be listened to. To to verify what you've just said, um, I had an interesting exchange with Peter Wadham about it, and Peter said, if anything, they are underestimating the the amount of uh, methane that could be uh, leaked out. So you know, he's he's backed up exactly what you said. Do you think the reason why they've come under such flack is because of the nature of the existential threat that that those levels of methane pose for the biosphere? 
you know, it's, you know, it's, it depends on where you're, um, you know, where you run your transects and you happen to, you know, sample just when a nut thing's being released or when it's not. The same issues with the satellites. I mean, you send a satellite over looking for the methane signatures and, you know, the satellite flies over and maybe there's no emissions. You know, it's, it's not a regular uh, thing as far as when the methane is leaking. So it, it, it's unlike uh, Arctic sea ice where, you know, the ice is there. So the satellite's going to see it. The satellite's not going to miss ice or not miss open water, that kind of stuff. Well, looking for methane emissions with satellites, and a lot of researchers depend on that, you're going to miss a lot. It's plain and simple. And even if you're in the ocean, and having done you know, my share of field research and, and oceanic uh, cruises and stuff like that, you know, you're sampling you know, right where, you're, where the vessel is, and you could have something completely going, different going on 100 meters off the starboard side, for example. Yeah, I totally get that. Um, I, I remember many years ago, there was an article about a English trawler that disappeared in the Arctic, and it, it completely disappeared. They didn't have a chance to put out a mayday, which is extraordinary because, you know, there's always someone sitting beside the VHF. They can normally do that easily. And what they found later on, with a research ship was up there looking for more hydrocarbons, they found the ship on the bottom of the ocean and it had dropped through a methane plume and landed on the bottom of the ocean. It was over so quickly they didn't have time to um, to make a call. So that's how big these discharges can be when they let off. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look what's going on in Siberia now. You, you literally have the ground exploding. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can have these... You know, it could be a meter across, 10 meters across, and just boom. You know, you have this methane gas building up and it just lets loose. And then you're left with a, with a crater where, where there used to be ground. So these things can be sudden. <laughs> Jim, thank you again for joining us today. My first question, or series of questions actually, focus on education from a global perspective. It was only about 2,500 years ago, not long when you take the view that you have in some of your paleoecological work. It was just about 2,500 years ago, Socrates was either a figment of Plato's imagination or he was asking people some form of the six questions for which he became famous. What is good? What is courage? What is piety? What is virtue? What is moderation? And so on. My question for you then is, when and where did we turn away from this question-centered approach? And what, in your opinion, are the consequences for having turned away? It's, it's hard to say when we turned away. In fact, I don't, I'm not even sure if we've even returned to it, to be honest, when you know, looking at the state of education in the U.S. for these days, for example, which to be honest, it really alarms me. Um, I agree wholeheartedly. I think we have not returned in any way shape or to a question-centered approach. I mean, and just you know, I, I, I used to, you know, in, in addition to being a, a research researcher at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, I was also an adjunct math professor. And I primarily taught the, the calculus series. And just seeing the decline in the 
critical thinking abilities of the students was was a shock to me. You know, over the twenty something years I was teaching, um, and I think that's a you know a, a major problem in, in U.S. society today is the lack of critical thinking. I mean, I'm not saying we should all be scientists, but we should all at least be scientifically literate, at least have a basic understanding of the concepts and stuff. And that's why I think uh, Carl Sagan's last book, uh, Demon Haunted World, with the subtitle Science of the Candle in the Dark, is a very important book. And that came out, what, quarter of a century ago, 1995? And it's still a prescient book today, even more so. Right, and and that approximately spans your own career, and to have witnessed a decline in critical thinking skills over that relatively short period of time is remarkable. Can we get it back? Uh, to get it back, we need the major policy changes, uh, starting uh, with, with the governments. I mean, we, we have to uh, undo a lot of the damage over the last four decades. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, educational standards have declined so much that, um, it's going to be a long road back, but unfortunately now with social media and all this stuff, people just get on there and they spout nonsense and they can't seem to understand the, the concept that opinions are not facts, you know, <laughs> you know it, it's, and, but they, they present it as such. Whether it's climate denial, uh, anti-vaxxers, anti-evolutionary folks, what have you, uh, the poison is out there, and it's, it's going to be a long road, a long haul, kind of revert to reverse that. Um, it's very, it's very disheartening, to be honest. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point. There obviously needs to be taken action taken at the societal level with respect to policies and regulations and so on. But maybe we can turn back a clock in our, in our own classrooms and make our classrooms more question-centered, more subject-centered. I used to tell my students all the time that this is not about the sage on the stage, the conventional model in the college classroom, and it's not about the student as customer either. And once you remove me and once you remove you, the students, from the classroom, then what are we left with? We're left, we're left with the subject. And so we're going to try to focus on the subject. But as you pointed out, there are societal roadblocks. You pointed out social media is one of those roadblocks. Are there others? What's keeping us as individual teachers from forcing our students to become more critical in their thinking and in their acting as a result. Can you identify some something or things for us there and maybe point the way toward getting out of that trap we seem to have fallen into, which is it's okay for everybody to be texting on their phone the whole time somebody's trying to teach a class? Well, uh... I know that I would not uh, allow, when I was teaching, I did not allow, I, I would have the students turn in their phones at the front of class. Seriously, I did. Um, as some of the things, at least in the K through 12, is that, you know, teachers are being forced to teach to these standardized exams. And standardized exams do not measure learning. 
I think standardized exams are a waste of time. Uh, I also think assigning grades is, is counterproductive. I'm an advocate of what's called the project-based learning, in, uh, especially in the K through 12. I mean, let's face it, as scientists, what, what do we do? We have a question. We go out there and we, we collect information, we collect data, we collect samples, and we go and try and find the answers. But what do we do with students in the classroom? We expect them to just sit still in a desk, in a chair by a desk. It's almost against human nature, where if you do a project-based learning, you get the students involved. They, they explore on their own. They devise a, a method to, you know, collect the information needed to you know, address what it is that they're doing. And that's how you, that to me is how you promote learning, learn by doing. Let's um, get back to the Arctic for a second. Tim, in November, you published a presentation on your YouTube channel about ocean salinity being altered by meltwater. And further to that, I discovered an article in Forbes magazine that said in 2007, scientists studying dolphins in the Gippsland lakes of southeastern Australia noticed something alarming where the dolphins were washing up on shore covered in skin lesions. Some of them looked like they'd had received third-degree burns. Can you give us an overview of the significance of ocean salinity, please? Well, uh, I think you're referring to the video I posted about, uh, I said uh, all of, you know, all about salinity, and uh, you know, and, and in that video, I was just trying to explain what salinity is in the ocean, how we measure it. It's not as easy as people think. And I, you know, I went through a whole bunch of things like, uh, you know, the salinity gradient in estuaries and, you know, how change of salinity can drive uh, thermal haline currents. And I, I seem to recall I might have mentioned something about uh, desalination plants and that they, they take the brine that's, you know, left over and dump it back into the waters, creating hyper-saline situations, which is... Uh, deleterious for organisms. Um, the paper that uh, you alerted me to is really interesting, and it seems to be uh, a result of a uh, decreased salinity that the dolphins uh, were experiencing. And um, that would be the obvious uh, reason for that would be all the uh, glacial melt Greenland, Antarctica, etc. You know, all the fresh water uh, that's being dumped into the ocean, creating a bit of a freshwater lens, that could definitely, that will definitely reduce the surface salinities. And dolphins tend to be surface swimmers, um, unlike, say, a sperm whale that can dive down deeply. So, if the, as the paper uh, concluded or demonstrated, uh, it's to reduce salinity that was causing these lesions on the dolphins, not necessarily a pathogen. And that's, that's kind of interesting to me because it, it, a, I, don't, I don't recall the paper addressing this, but to me, a possible uh, pathology uh, for this would be uh, simple osmotic uh, relations 
that uh, if an organism is finding itself, you know, hyper osmotic to the relative to the environment, then the tissues are going to absorb water from the environment, and it could be causing the uh, at least the epidermal cells uh, to become too filled with water and uh, the turgor pressure inside the cell is too great, and the cells start bursting. And if you get a whole bunch of them bursting, that would give the appearance of lesions. But now you have, you know, you've ruined the epidermal layer. Now you have exposed dermal layer, and that will uh, cause some issues uh, for the organism. So that's, I don't know if I'm correct in that, but that would be my hypothesis for what's going on. Jim, you are... In, in that last little bit of description, you are pointing to the intricate and fragile interplay between the physical environment and the organism, something that has evolved over a very long period of time and which clearly we are capable of changing through human actions in a vastly faster period of time than organisms can keep up. In other words, you're talking about habitat. Can you talk a little bit about habitat, what it is, what it means, how it's measured, how it affects organisms? I think this is one of the major stumbling blocks that most people amongst the general public have in understanding why other animals are harbingers for what's coming for human animals is the notion of habitat. So if you could wander down that path a little bit, that'd be awesome. Well, uh, habitat is, you know, basically where an organism lives. And that is, I distinguish, in my view, from the ecological niche an organism occupies. I mean, you could have, you know, a zebra and a lion occupying the same habitat, you know, the savannas, but one is an herbivore, one is a carnivore. That would be the ecological niche. But what it comes down to, if the habitat is being uh, degraded for whatever reason, uh, human insults from pollution and so on, um, that's going to put stresses on the organisms that live there. That's going to uh, negatively impact their ability to survive if, you know, if their home is suddenly not suitable. And if, if these changes happen too quickly, Yes, the uh, organism, the species, will not be able to adapt fast enough to um, to deal with the situation. And you take you take that and you uh, expand it now to what's happening with the climate ch- uh, changing all over the planet. Things are changing much too rapidly for organisms to adapt, for species to adapt, and this is what's leading to uh, we're in the middle of a sixth mass extinction. And we're losing, when I see an estimation of 200 species a day. So this is um, a major problem. And, you know, from humans encroaching on habitat, uh, habitat destruction, all, all that is happening from you know, pollution, from the uh, changing climate due to the uh, burning of fossil fuels. We are stressing out species on a global scale. And this does not bode well for them. It does not bode well ultimately for humans. 
Jim, that answer leads me to uh, a discussion you and I had via email about the significance of the uh, sea ice and the fact that we've lost so much sea ice that sea ice presents habitat for the Arctic marine food web. You know, the algae on the bottom of it and then all the different organisms that feed on that and then all the way up through the, species, uh, the um, fish species. Can you give your, your thoughts on that subject, please? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. It's, it's a very important uh, topic, one that really not given much press and certainly until recently hasn't even been noticed by the sciences, which is kind of alarming to me. But for, for those of us who, who are oceanographers living in the Arctic the, the realm, we, we've known the importance of that. Uh, the sea ice, yes, is very important uh, aspect of primary productivity and hence overall productivity in the Arctic Ocean. Uh, you have algae that are living on the underside of the uh, of the sea ice. You also, uh, and that's a, that's a whole uh, food web community right there in of itself. And as we progress into summertime, as the sea ice melts back, you you, know, you have this basically a freshwater pool uh, put on the surface of the uh, water, and that basically creates a little mini stratification, and that that uh, uh, starts up a, another bit of a food web, another bit of a food chain, increasing uh, overall productivity. And then eventually, as the ice melts back, the sun gets higher in the sky, then the marine phytoplankton, the phytoplankton found more in the open uh, water, the pelagic forms, they uh, then kick in with their primary productivity. So you have contributing the overall productivity uh, in the Arctic Ocean during the productivity season, you have basically three communities. You have uh, the, the sea ice itself, the, the uh, primary producers on the underside of the sea ice. You got the productivity from when the sea ice melts, and then you got the productivity from the open ocean. You start losing the sea ice, you're going to lose the first two communities. And the other thing is, before the marine phytoplankton can do, start doing their thing, the angle of the sun has to be high enough or steep enough to activate the electron transport chain you know, found within their chlorophyll, their chloroplast, to, so that they can start doing their thing. If you have, excuse me, if you have no sea ice early on year, the sun is still too low of an angle to activate the marine phytoplankton. So the net result of all of this is that the primary productivity is greatly reduced for the Arctic Ocean, which then, of course, uh, leads to a reduction in secondary and tertiary productivity as well. Yeah, I, can, I can verify that from an, uh, an article titled Climate Change is Disrupting the Arctic Ecosystem as part of the sea isn't refreezing. It was published in INEWS news, uh, uh, INEWS.co.uk. And what they said was that, that um, where the sea ice is melted and never frozen back, those, those um, 
organisms in the water didn't get a chance to do their normal cycle. And that creates these extinction cascades that Guy and I interviewed a, a Professor Corey uh, Bradshaw from Flinders University last year, and he published a paper about extinction cascades. So that's our concern is that you get this tipping point happen and you can have a phase shift in the ocean. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a very good point there. And um, the other thing is also happening is not only are we losing the sea ice, but we're losing multi-year sea ice. So that's going to make it even more difficult for uh, the ice to reform and to, you know, to regroup or recoup, better word, recoup the, uh, getting back the multi-year sea ice. So, and of course, with the lack of sea ice, and you have more sun energy being absorbed by the water instead of you know, being reflected back in the space. But what a lot of people may not be aware of is that when you have like one, two-year sea ice, the ice is still kind of translucent. So sun energy, some of it will still penetrate through the ice and be absorbed by the water. The multi-year sea ice is very opaque and that is where you have the, the highest albedo. So that's where you have the highest sunlight energy reflecting back into space to keep things cooler. We're now heating up the, the Arctic Ocean. And, of course, with the specific heat of water, you, it's just going to retain that heat. So the, it takes longer for the ocean to cool down because of the specific heat. And also you have uh, salts in it. So you have to cool the water even further because of freezing point depression which is why sea ice is forming later and later in the year. And because the water is still retaining the heat, it's melting earlier in the year. And so you're just setting up this uh, positive feedback loop of uh, eventually you know, some modeling saying that we're going to have a blue ocean event and like starting that possibly next year. And so, yes, you're changing the, the physical dynamic, the physical characteristics of the environment and you're changing it quickly, so this is going to impact in a negative manner the species found there, leading to, as you uh, mentioned, uh, dying off of, the, of species and possible extinction of species. Speaking of oceans, in its September 2019 special report, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, finally ad admitted climate change is irreversible due to overheating of the oceans. Can you support that notion with observations, with your thoughts, with, and how come it took them so damn long to figure that out? And why has there been no media reports on it since September of 2019? I mean, there's, this is a, a absolutely huge event for the in unbelievably conservative IPCC to report that climate change is irreversible. And it made the 15 seconds on the news, and that was it. What's going on here? Well, um, having had to deal with the IPCC, you know, from from myself and our other researchers up here in Alaska, we're preparing our reports. Um, yes, the IPCC is extremely political. It's not really a scientific body, unfortunately. Um, they tend to make, well, they, they tend to just underestimate the impacts of everything. And they keep assuming a linear 
rate of change, which is we now know to be incorrect. It's exponential. Um, they typically ignore the methane issue slash problem. Um, so when they start saying things like, oh, it's too late or we really need to do something, then things are really, really, really bad. <laughs> I mean, to be, to be blunt about it. Um, I have, you know, we have evidence, for example, if we want to look at the, uh, you know, thermal hailing circulation, and we can look at colloquially the, what's called the conveyor belt, uh, you know, it starts in the, the Gin Sea, the Greenland, Icelandic, Norwegian Sea. Uh, you know, you have the Gulf Stream becoming the northward drip at that point, giving off its heat. It's now very cold water, but also very salty water, which is very dense. It sinks and it starts the deep water uh, formation. It starts the, count, the North Atlantic deep water eventually flowing back. And if you had asked me a couple of years ago, you know, what would the in, impact of global warming would be? And I said, well, because you, you, know, you, you'd melt the ice, you shut down AMOC or slow it down. You, you put the plant into a cooling situation, and we have evidence for that. You know, we can look at the Younger Dryas. You know, we can, you know, some of the work that the late Wally Broker did uh, demonstrated this quite clearly. I am now of the opinion that there's so much thermal inertia in the system that even with uh, AMOC shut down, it's going to it's going to be a you know, very warm situation for you know, at least a millennia before there's any notable uh, cooling down of the planet. And another uh, consequence of you know, warming uh, the planet, and don't forget, the oceans have been absorbing a, a lot of the energy. They've actually been, keep, actually been kind of saving out bacon, if, if you will, for the moment. The problem with that is you're going to stratify the upper layers of the ocean and with that, without mixing, you need a mixing event to bring nutrients into the photic zone followed, followed by stratification within the, the phytoplankton can do their thing. If you just have a stratified ocean, you're not going to have any mixing of nutrients into the photic zone. You're going to shut down primary productivity massively, and you're going to basically kill off the, uh, the pelagic uh, you know, food web uh, areas. And don't forget, phytoplankton provide about 55 to 80% of the atmospheric oxygen we all breathe. So if you shut down the productivity from the oceans, that is a very, very bad thing. In fact, there's already been a, a measurement of declining oxygen levels in the atmosphere. So it's already happening. Another thing, with, if I can just go back to the conveyor belt, one branch of the conveyor belt upwells in what's called the Antarctic Divergent Zone. The Antarctic Divergent Zone is the region where you have high productivity in the Southern Ocean. That upwelling bringing all the nutrients with it is what fueled the Southern Ocean. Why you have so much krill, you have all the baleen whales, etc. down there. You shut down the conveyor belt, that whole food uh, system collapses. So there are very dire uh, 
ramifications of all of this that's coming down the pipe. And I'm not so, and I don't, I don't see it being avoided to be quite blunt and honest. You don't, you don't sound like a very hopeful guy, Jim. <laughs> I'm being realistic. <laughs> you already indicated your familiar, familiarity with the research of Natalia Shakova, Igor Semelitov, and their colleagues. They have been widely disparaged by modelers such as NASA's Gavin Schmidt and the University of Chicago's David Archer. So reiterate quickly your impression of the work of Shakova and colleagues, and maybe you can indicate why this work is being so roundly disparaged by these other so-called climate scientists. Uh, well, first of all, uh, you, know, you know, full disclosure, I, I know Natalia and Igor. Um, we worked at the same institution. Um, and I know them to be very good scientists, very excellent scientists. Uh, then they're not given to hyperbole. Let's put it that way. Um, I, you know, looking at, you know, you can look at these models, but I'll go back to what I mentioned earlier. You know, a lot of these other researchers that live in lower latitudes, they have limited opportunities when they can sample. They're also using satellite technology. So there's a, they, there's a lot of, uh, emissions that are being missed. That leads to the underestimation that they're reporting. Natalia and Igor are constantly running transects, constantly sampling. So they're sampling a great portion of the year. In fact, Igor is uh, finishing up, he just finished up a research that went from the East Siberian Sea to the Laptev and even into the Kara Sea, doing extensive transects. So, um, Something was reported, I think, Siberian Times or something like that. But you know, he he, ju he just finished doing a research cruise, so and he's going to have lots of samples to uh, to go through and and then do all the analysis. Um, so I think the uh, I'm not sure why they're getting disparaged because you know they're saying that they overestimate. I think the other researchers are underestimating because of the limitations of their sampling and of you know relying on satellite data. That's that's kind of my take on it. But even so, I mean, uh, Igor in a, in a conversation he had with me said he, goes, he says, "Yeah, we're reporting these values. We're getting you know criticized for that." He says, "And we're probably still underestimating what's going on." You know, just to kind of put it in perspective. Um, you know, the methane is a, is a large problem, whether it's coming from the hydrates, the clathrate, the permafrost dying. But you also have, you know, fracking, that's adding a lot of methane to the atmosphere. And, uh, you know, from uh, bovine uh, flatulence, to be, not to put, be so delicate about it. <laughs> Jim, one other thing that we discussed uh, in, in our email exchange is the possibility of pathogens and pestilence coming out of the melting permafrost. We're seeing lots of um, um, cases of different mammoths and all sorts of animals manifesting. And we did have in Siberia a couple of years ago an, an outbreak of anthrax as a result of um, some antelope defrosting and, and infecting people. What's your take on, on that aspect of the unravelling that we're watching? 
that is a huge concern of mine, and uh, as you uh, rightly pointed out, it's something that was hardly mentioned. Um, it kind of gives you an example. Uh, just very recently, within the last couple of months, uh, a couple of Russian scientists uh, have came across some worms that were, you know, came out of the, the permafrost. And so they took them back to the lab, and the worms came back to life. This is, in, you know, frozen for 40,000 years. They came back to life. We do not know what pathogens are lurking in, in the frozen uh, permafrost. Now, the permafrost thaws, ice lenses melts, what have you. We don't know what's going to be unleashed. And quite frankly, if they've been frozen away for 30, 40, 50,000 years or so, chances are we have no immunity to these organisms. And if they, you know, make it into the general uh, population, you know, it could just go rip-roaring right through hum humanity. So this is a major concern. And I, I definitely can see some pandemics resulting. Pandemics that will make the one that we're in experience at the moment look like nothing because in reality, this COVID is nothing remotely like as bad as the Black Death. So, you know, if we get something on that scale, we'd be looking down the barrel of um, a mass extermination event just from that alone. Uh, I totally agree. Uh, in fact, I think it was a James uh, Black who just basically stated that um, he, he opined that uh, if a lot of these, not only, you know, potential pathogens are coming out of the uh, permafrost being introduced, but just overall environmental degradation that humans are doing, he, he said uh, that he could foresee up to 6 billion people uh, dying worldwide. Well, that's three quarters of the, of the current human population. Yeah, there's no way to prepare for that. Well, no. But you know, we're talking about all this stuff coming as a result of the melting of the permafrost. Uh, Extreme Weather Europe have just posted a, a, an article that there's an unusually strong warm wave is heading for the Siberian Ar Arctic Ocean, raising surface temperatures more than 20 degrees C above normal. When you have been working in the Arctic, did you ever see a temperature anomaly of 20 degrees C? No, <laughs> I never did, no. to be quite honest. And this, this is really alarming, to be honest. And, you know, in addition to that, don't forget, um, we have the intrusion of, you know, Atlantic water making its way into the Arctic Ocean, also from the Pacific side, but more so the Atlantic side. For example, the Barren Sea is now, uh, we're using the term being Atlantified, you know, the Atlantification of the Barren Sea, because the physical characteristics of the Barren Sea is now starting to resemble more the Atlantic Ocean than the Arctic Ocean. And so it, you know, considering that the, you know, the atmosphere and the oceans are a coupled system, it does not surprise me, as alarming as it is, that we're seeing what we're seeing here. And it is very alarming. And that's just going to have, uh, this is not like a, a one-week thing. I mean, this, this warmth of, that we've been seeing across Eurasia, especially Siberia, 
it's now been ongoing for well over a year. And it, it's, I think it's, it's a portent of what's going to become the quote unquote new normal. The Arctic, let's, let's be blunt about it. The Arctic is no longer the Arctic we knew. It's a new Arctic up here and it's not really having typical character, Arctic characteristics. Uh, I don't if I need a new term for it. I don't know what the appropriate term would be, but the, the Arctic has definitely changed. Uh, and I have often in the past quoted the president of Finland where he said, if we lose the Arctic, we lose the world. And it's patently clear that we have lost the Arctic. I, I, I use the analogy that if you want to understand what's going to happen, turn the, turn the power off to your fridge and freezer. And it's incredible how quickly things, first of all, they, they warm, and then all, all the organisms and all the food start um, metabolizing the food and they generate heat. You know, this is these feedbacks and tipping loops that all the NGOs and, and all the, the, the corporate scientists used to talk about. But now that we've entered abrupt climate change, nonlinear climate change, no one wants to talk about feedback loops. No, and uh, we definitely set into motion a whole pile of positive feedback loops, which, of course, is a runaway system. Um, don't forget, uh, about a year or so ago, in March, we, we did an experiment. Human humanity didn't realize it, but we did an experiment. You know, we had the, the COVID hit and planes were grounded. <coughs> Excuse me. And we noticed that, yes, uh, uh, CO2 emissions from humans uh, decreased, decreased quite noticeably. Yet temperatures still increased. And that's part of the thermal inertia that I refer to. So... Even if we were somehow able to get to zero emissions, which, you know, let's be practical about it's not going to happen. We can reduce CO2 emissions drastically, but getting to zero emissions is not, in my opinion, not realistic. You're still going to have warming because of the thermal inertia, all the positive feedback loops that we kicked in. To the point about losing the Arctic, I have... long uh, been saying, and it's in my videos, that uh, what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. And quite frankly, uh, I've, been, uh, I've been seeing some papers, some modeling that suggests that by 2100, the planet could uh, increase its temperature by anywhere from 3 to 5 C. I've seen some papers uh, saying 7 to 9 C by 2100. Well, if you go back to the uh, PETM, the Paleocene Eocene Thermal Maximum, and w- which is called basically hothouse earth when the planet was the hottest ever, uh, the temperatures there were 16 degrees C above pre-industrial revolution uh, levels. If they're saying in a mere 80 years, 7 to 9, that's more than halfway to the PETM levels. This is really not good. And and one uh, critique I would make about those projections is a lot of them are still based on linear changes, and they're not factoring in non-linearity. Well, the, the, the those that say three to five, yes, they're assuming linearity, 
those are saying, you know, seven to nine, that's when they're taking into account the exponential uh, nature of how things are changing. I would suggest that even at that, they are ignoring the aerosol masking effectors or global dimming. Are you familiar with that idea, Jim? I am, and there's been a number of papers that have looked at, I take you talking about the influence of the solar insulation. The aerosol masking effector, the idea that there are particles resulting from industrial activity that go into the atmosphere oh, okay. that block incoming sunlight and prevent the planet from being warmed in the first place. So the greenhouse gases, it doesn't matter that they're to, there to keep it warm. Yeah, so you basically referring to the aerosols and other particulates. Also, yeah. probably a little bit of like geoengineering of let's introduce some uh, particles into the atmosphere to reflect sun energy you know, back up into space. Um, like anything else with uh, with geoengineering or any other such thing, there's always going to be unintended uh, uh, interactions or un- uh, interactions parameters that were not accounted for. Uh, geoengineering, in my view, is a waste. It does not work. Um, the, the dimming. I got, again, I go back to the thermal inertia that has already been uh, already been started in the system. I do not see dimming having a significant uh, effect on reducing uh, planet planetary wide temperatures. I just don't. I don't. The extent is not as ex- as expansive as some would think. Um, particles tend to be washed out of the atmosphere pretty quickly. So it doesn't linger as long, um, and, and that's the same issue. You know, with the putting the aluminum particles from the geoengineering folks, that stuff washes out, gets into the soil, and then does very nasty things to the root systems of the plants. And when you start killing off the plants, we're already having worldwide. We're already seeing a reduction in crop yields, and the, those crops that are harvested. The nutritional value is also at a lower level. Um, so, so going back to the to the dimming, I don't I don't see it to being a significant contributor. Hey, can um, we go f- further back to the IPCC for a minute, please? We're sort of getting um, close to the end of the show, and there was one more thing I wanted to discuss with the IPCC. In there. In the representative concentration pathways, which is part of their whole prediction process for uh, how much warming we'll see going forward, they factored in carbon capture and storage at scale that doesn't exist. It's fantasy technology. As a scientist, how do you feel about such a cavalier approach to those predictions from the IPCC? Well, uh, <laughs> let's just say that I have my issues with the IPCC. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, I. This is not something to be cavalierish about. Uh, you know, in all, in all seriousness, it's not something to be cavalierish about. Um, there are things happening. Uh, you know, with, we've been talking about the Arctic sea ice. But let's not forget what's happening at the, you know, 
something a little closer to where you're at, uh, Twaities and Pine Island glaciers in Antarctica. Those, they're on the uh, imminent verge of collapse. You know, then you have the, the Brunt Ice Shelf, the Ross Ice Shelf. Um, we just got so many things going on. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't think it's helpful to have a, a dismissive cavalierish approach, and I'll just leave it at that. Jim, a question about they've completely and utterly abandoned the precautionary principle. Go on, guy, please. Jim, how can how can regular folks, you know, the the Joe Sixpack, the guy on the street, help get the message out about science? Short of going on social media, which is a toxic stew, how can people listening at home who are interested in promulgating scientific messages how can they do that and in a related note what are your next steps in your efforts to educate the masses well what people can do is uh, vote vote in politicians who actually do something uh and not just at the national level although that would help but you know everything from state to local levels as well you need to getting uh, politicians who take this seriously and are committed to to changing what we do. I've often said that you know, us scientists, we collect the data, we do the analysis, we present our findings, we present recommendations. The one thing we don't do is, because that's not a purview, is we don't make policies. It's up to the politicians to make policies. So we need to put politicians in office and pressure them to enact, implement policies that will be helpful. As far as what I knew, uh, I'm I'm just going to keep doing what I keep doing on, you know, with my channel. This is what I'm hoping to that I can keep growing my channel so that I can disseminate the information that I present to more and more people because I do consider this information to be critically important. Because, to be quite blunt, um, the survival of humanity, human civilization, is at stake. And that's not hyperbole. You know, that's just looking at the data, understanding, you know, the concept of science, understanding, you know, what's going on, and seeing what's, uh, what would be in store if we just keep doing business as usual. Uh, it, it's like we, we have a saying in science that if you want to have an idea what's going to happen in the future, you have to look at what's happened in the past, learn from the past. And the lessons we've learned from the past indicate that we continue on this path. It's not going to be very good for humanity. Hey, that, that's fantastic, Jim. I'm very, very grateful for you coming on the show today. Um, I'll publish the when um, PRN upload it to the the show to the website. I'll publish it on my website, and I'll put in all the corroborating links about what we've discussed, and links to your um, YouTube channel and to your to people connect with you on Twitter. And I'd like to thank all our contributors and listeners today, as well as Afrozen for our theme music. You can watch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday afternoon of the month at 3 p.m. Eastern. Our next episode is scheduled to share uh, to air live on February the 2nd in the United States. 
that's Wednesday the 3rd here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. If you missed the broadcast, you can find shows in the archives at PRN, the Podbeam, and at Stitcher, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. Also, to continue the uh, to follow the Nature Bats last blog, GuyMcPherson.com, for further updates, interviews, and speaking tours, you can keep up with my work at KevinHester.live. Until the next time, remember the dominant culture has been clever, but in the end, Nature, Nature Bats last. Flip Georgia! <laughs> well, first of all, uh, thank you uh, both uh, gentlemen for uh, having me on. Uh, time certainly did fly past. And uh, I appreciate you uh, uh, having me on. Thanks again. Mother Nature.